And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm delighted to welcome Nick Stone to the program today. Nick is a successful writer of YA novels, those being Dear Martin, Jackpot, and Odd One Out. Today we'll be talking about her first book for middle graders, Clean Getaway, which is published by Crown Books for Young Readers. Nick, when Clean Getaway starts, William Lamar is on spring break with his grandmother, but they don't call each other by those names, do they? No, they don't. They don't. So both of my grandmothers, I had Granny A and Granny B, which actually had to do with their last names, but it was a cool little interesting way of like, hey, this is the first granny, this is the second one. But Granny B didn't feel slighted that she was second out enough about the order? Because her last name was Bowie, I think she was okay with it. And they have had different nicknames for each grandchild. And it's important to me. Names are like a huge deal to me in books, not just like the character's given name, but also what they're called by the people around them. Because I think that the way a person refers to another person says a lot about their relationship. So Scoob, the grandmother calls her grandson Scooba-Doob because when he was little, he couldn't say Scooby-Doo. So he tries to get her to just call him Scoob and he calls her G-Ma. And it's very fitting. Once you read, you will see that G-Ma is very fitting for this particular grandmother. She's old school G for sure. Absolutely. OG. The OG. If you make it all the way to the end of the book and read the acknowledgments, you'll see a lot of the names that were in the book also pop up in the acknowledgments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like kind of tapping family members and friends on the shoulder as a way of saying thank you by using their names in my books. William Scoob Lamar, his... Middle name is actually Armando, and it's mentioned once in the book, but he's my cousin. And I remember calling my cousin to ask him if I could use his name in this book because it's just such a great name. It's a good character name. And Ruby was my paternal grandmother. That was my paternal grandmother's name. It's fun getting to kind of immortalize the people that I care about in these books because, you know, while no human being will live forever, they'll definitely live as long as this book does. Now, you mentioned that Gma is OG, mm-hmm. but Scoob doesn't know that. No. So what is the woman known as Gma like as Scoob knows her at the beginning of the book? Yeah, so this was actually my reason for writing the book. Before I answer your question, I'm going to go back a little bit and tell you about the inspiration for this book. So I was on Twitter one day instead of working, and I stumbled upon this tweet about a woman in Atlanta who was 82 years old and who had been arrested at a department store for trying to steal a diamond bracelet. And I was like, whose gangsta grandma is out here stealing jewelry? Well, I started doing research on this lady because, like, typically you don't see 82-year-old women getting arrested, period, let alone for, like, larceny. And it turns out it's a woman named Doris Payne. She is, as I discovered, an international jewel thief, like renowned (laughs) jewel thief. She started stealing jewelry in her early 20s. The first time she stole jewelry, her aim was to get some money so she could help her mother get out of an abusive relationship. And there's something about that, about discovering that this older woman who'd been arrested had been arrested before quite a few times, that struck me and that made me think about how often people in older generations in our lives, they get kind of, we like plop them into these roles and we leave them there. And there's very little 
exploration of the people they were before they became grandma or before they became mom or before they became dad, before they became auntie or uncle. But people are multifaceted and we are made up of our experiences. And I really wanted to write a book where I got to explore how a person's experiences that someone in their family doesn't know about have shaped who they are and how they operate. So as Scoob and Jima go on this road trip, some strange things start happening and he begins to question really what he knows about his grandmother. And he begins to see that she's not necessarily just like the sweet old lady who does no wrong that he's always thought she is. She is a queen, according to his father. But the interesting thing is his father has no idea either, right? So it was my way of digging a little bit into the lives of people we're super close to but haven't really thought to ask about. And my hope is that it's a book that stimulates a desire for both kids and for older readers to start asking the people who are older than them more about their lives when they were younger. Well, I definitely learned about my grandfathers after they had passed away yeah. things that I had no idea. Well, you just like, what? <laughs> yes. Have you had any of that in your family? I have. My grandmother. I have one grandparent who is still alive. And to this day, we have these very interesting conversations and she'll tell me things and I'll be like, Granny, okay. She told me about her wedding night and how, like, it didn't really go the way she was hoping. <laughs> like, there were all of these stories. Like, our grandparents are so full of stories that I learned so much about myself just by listening to my grandmother's stories because seeing the things that formed her helped me to see who she was when she was raising my mother, which gave me some insight into who my mother was when she was raising me, which now gives me some insight into myself. And it's so fascinating to be able to trace things back. And I think it would do us all a service to take some time to do that for ourselves. Especially learn about how terrible our parents were as teenagers uh -huh. when we are teenagers ourselves. Oh, yes. I know some things about my mother that she probably is, would not be happy about me knowing. I remember in, in my early 20s, my grandmother asked me where I was going to go take my new girlfriend. And I said, well, we're going to go to Tulsa, Oklahoma, to Kane's Ballroom mm -hmm. to see Ice Tea and Body Count back in the yes. day. Yes. Easter Sunday it was. Oh, that is fabulous. And then she said, oh, me and your grandpa used to drive over to Tulsa to see Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys and dance all night long. Look and so it was, uh, it was a nice little way to, to bond over yeah, that. Yeah, you're like, huh, okay, it's nice. You feel this connection to this person who, for so long for me, my grandmother was just this like matriarch, you know, like she was this authority figure who was really fun. So my maternal grandmother, Granny A, she's like four foot nine now. I think the tallest she's ever been is like five feet tall. So she's tiny. And when we were younger, and we were about the same height, she would come and she would play baseball with us in the backyard. And she was in her 60s. And I remember there was one time, one of my cousins, because all of the cousins, we would gather at Granny A's house during the summer and just like spend the summer there all together. And one of my cousins thought it would be funny to try and step in front of the base when she was trying to get to first base. And she just tackled it. <laughs> and it was just this moment that will stand out in my memory forever to the point where I even referenced something like it in the book. Because I don't know, there's something really powerful about connecting with 
this older generation of people who on the one hand, they seem kind of removed because it's like, well, you're my grandmother and that has very specific connotations that comes with it. But you're my grandmother who is literally playing baseball with me in the backyard. So like there's a lot that we can connect on. As your grandmother A was not very tall, Mm -hmm. G-Ma in the book is not very tall. Mm -hmm. And in the drawing, Scoob is already a head taller than her. So he's going to be pretty darn tall when he gets older. He will. My father is 6'5". Goodness. Yeah, we're pretty tall in my family. So Except your grandmother. Yeah, except for Granny A. You know, she's she's 4'9". I'm a foot taller than her, which is really funny. You know, like I went to pick her up to bring her down to Georgia for Thanksgiving this past year. And we're like walking through the airport and I'm looking down. And it was just so bizarre to think that like I've literally outgrown this person who's such a figurehead in my life to the point where like I'm looking down at her and I'm helping her now. It's it's wild. It's really wild. But she's still the boss. She, of course. Of course. My grandmother has Tom Brady aim. So <laughs> at this point, she won't chase you around with a fly swatter anymore. It used to be if you stepped out of line, you were getting it with the fly swatter. Now she just lobs a shoe or a television remote or really whatever is within reach. So it doesn't matter how old you are. Don't step out of line. You're probably going to get hit in the head with something. When was the last time you've been hit in the head? Um, about two years ago. I'm 34. So, <laughs> so, so what nonsense were you 32. up to? I was just poking fun at her about her pants being up over her navel. It's like, Granny, why are you wearing your pants up so high? Just I thought high-waisted was back in style with normcore and everything. I, she doesn't know that. <laughs> I was just having a bit of fun, and she house shoe just came flying into the kitchen from the from the den, and plop right in the forehead. It's impressive. Now, this is a road trip that Gma and Scoob are on mm-hmm. in her newly purchased Winnebago, and this was not the spring break trip Scoob was supposed to have. No. So the spring break trip got canceled. Scoob has a very fraught, I think would be the right word, relationship with his single father. So Scoob has been raised by a single dad. He's never met his mother. And with that relationship, you have this older biracial black man and his son, who is, he's like three-fourths black if we're doing the math. Both of them look like black men, right? Like if you are a black man in this country, there are certain things that you have to put up with that other people typically don't. So his father is very aware of this. Added to this kind of bag of baggage, if you will, is the fact that Scoob's grandfather, so Gma's husband and Scoob's father's father, he never met him. Scoob's father never met his own father because he was in prison by the time Scoob's father was born. So in addition to feeling the weight of like being a black man in America, Scoob's father also feels this intense desire to make sure that he didn't turn out like his father and that Scoob doesn't turn out like his father. He does not want Scoob to get into any kind of trouble. He doesn't want him to wind up in jail like his, like his own father did. So with that comes this pressure from this older black man. I think his father's probably in his late 30s. And he is very hard on Scoob. And he recognizes that there's a there's a scene in the book where Scoob gets into a fight. He's trying to defend a person in his class who was being bullied. He gets into this fight and he gets suspended from school. Scoob and his father have this conversation about how when you are brown, and his dad points to one side of his hand, 
and you do certain things, you suffer different consequences than when you're not brown. And he points to the palm of his hand. So it's this moment where Scoob begins to understand the implications of just like the body that he exists in. And because of that, his father can be a little too hard on him. And they often clash. They often don't understand each other. So Scoob gets in trouble at school for a second time. And this is when the spring break trip gets canceled. And Scoob gets put on lockdown. So when Jima shows up and is like, hey, you want to go on a trip? Scoob says yes. And that's when our story begins. And we are already on the trip yeah. as the book opens up and they're getting ready to enter into the Yellowhammer state yeah. of Alabama. So this road trip is highly symbolic for Gma. Mm-hmm. She's really taking a trip down her own memory lane. As we discover very early on in the book, the trip that she's taking Scoob on is a trip she tried to take with her African-American husband in the 60s. Um, because Jima is Caucasian. Because Jima's white, yeah. So interestingly enough, my kids have a white grandmother. I'm black, my husband is biracial, his mother is Russian, and his father is Nigerian. And they met in Russia. My in-laws met in Russia and got married in Russia in the 70s. My father-in-law went to Russia to study engineering. And I kind of got the idea from my own family but interestingly enough, my mother-in-law's only been in the U.S. once, right? Like she came to the U.S. for our wedding. <laughs> That's the only time she's ever been to America. So I took this idea of a grandson and a grandparent who were different races, but who have just a regular old grandmother-grandson relationship. Because I think that oftentimes when we talk about issues of race, things can get so like staunchly divided that the humanity gets lost. So it was important to me in this book to reflect just a normal relationship between a grandmother and a grandson that is affected by the idea of race, but not necessarily in the ways that people would think. So she tried to take this trip with her husband. It didn't work for reasons that are to be discovered in the book. So she decides that she wants to try again. Again, for reasons <laughs> that will be discovered when you read the book. But as she is going along giving Scoob very little information, he's coming to discover not only things about her, but things about the world that she inhabited. And he's learning all of this history that he's not learning in school, which is a thing that I think is really important. I remember in high school, my U.S. history textbook had a paragraph on slavery, which <laughs> at that point, there were more years that people were enslaved in this country than there were years since emancipation. I think like That's, even Texas yeah. is trying to take sla the word slavery out of textbooks. It's wild, right? Like the way history is rewritten. I don't like that very much. So I made sure to hit the facts that I learned after getting out of school when I was writing this book. Like there's a discussion of Emmett Till, of Medgar Evers, of Ruby Bridges, the first African-American child to integrate a school in the South. Um, all of these people are mentioned in, in this book. In the 20th century. In the 20th century. Yeah. This was like in 19, what was it? Brown versus Board of Education was 1954. So I think this was like 1960 is when, and she's still alive. That's the wild thing. Ruby Bridges is like, she's like just a grandmother. And the students from Little Rock Central are still with us. Yeah, everybody's still here, which says a lot about the short amount of time that these things have been the way they are. And I wanted that to be kind of central in, in Scoob's learning arc in this book. So he's learning all of these things as he goes. 
He's learning about the ways that the past has kind of created his present. And like I said, he's learning about his Jima. He's learning some things about her too. I think his kind of central arc is coming to see his own agency, right? Middle school years are tricky, to say the least, right? Like you have this stage of development where kids are moving a little bit away from parents in the sense of like making their own decisions, but there's still a desire to be protected. There's still times when like you're 12, but you saw a scary movie, so now you want to go sleep in your parents' bed. So it's this odd dual consciousness where you're still a kid, but you're also starting to make decisions on your own. And he is learning that like, he's gonna have to make some big decisions that he's not expecting. And they all have to do with this idea of knowing something about someone that maybe someone else doesn't know and trying to decide whether or not you're going to tell this other person because relationships are precious and it's really easy to ruin them. It's like takes more time to build a relationship than it does to, to ruin one. So Scoob comes to learn that in this book. I've been thinking recently about thinking on my elementary school years mm -hmm. back in the 70s and how it seemed everything was more acceptable and there was no clicks mm -hmm. in the classes and just kids said, hey, everything's cool. And then junior high back then rolls yeah. around and things get stratified so quickly. It's wild, right? It's like suddenly there's this surge of, okay, I have to figure out who I am. And identity becomes such a big deal when you hit like eighth grade or so, seventh, eighth grade. Something I find wildly fascinating is the fact that sixth graders and eighth graders are in the same building mm -hmm. because they're such different people. They are in completely different places developmentally. Their priorities are totally different. But you do, you have this shift where peer approval becomes way more important than parent approval. But then like sixth and seventh grade is this kind of funky wavering place where like sometimes you want to make your parents happy, but sometimes you want to make your friends happy. And sometimes you're confused. You can't figure out what you should do. And that's what I wanted to capture in this book. because it's, it's a tough time. Like middle school is a tough time. There's a, an important word that Jima uses that Scoob recalls, and that's mm -hmm. agency. Yeah, agency. Agency is a huge deal. Learning that you actually do have some say-so in your own life and you do have to decide at some point the things that you are and are not going to do and recognize that those things come with consequences. It's interesting. I have two kids. My kids are young. They are seven and three. And we talk about agency a lot because I want them to know from a very young age that like everything you do has an effect. So recognize that like you can make decisions. You don't want to go to bed? okay, you're going to be really tired in the morning and mommy's not going to put up with your nonsense. So you need to make sure you're making the right decision by sitting up in your room instead of going to sleep. Giving kids options from a young age is an important thing to me. And as you read through the book, I hope that readers will come to see what it means for a kid to start realizing they have agency and what it means for a kid to start recognizing that like the adults in their lives aren't always right about everything. And, and they start to realize that sometimes they have to step up because the adult maybe is not in a position to make a decision. It's a tough time. It really is. 
And one of the biggest decisions that Scoob makes early on is leaving his cell phone at home. He does leave his cell phone at home largely because he doesn't want his father to be able to get in touch with him, which I think says a lot. If you're 11 years old and you have a cell phone and you are you willingly leave it at home, it kind of says a lot about your relationship with this person you're trying to avoid, right? So yeah, he is so bent on trying to not get into more trouble that he completely cuts off a means of communication that he because would have Because that'll go so well. <laughs> Yeah, and it doesn't really go the way that he plans. But of course, if it did, it wouldn't be a story. So you got to have some kind of hiccups in there. But I love the point where he's on the trip and he's thinking back on his father and he's thinking about how did the peaches get into the bowl? Uh huh. And yeah. that shows the parental love without hitting you over the head with it. Right. Yeah, I love nuance. It's like my most favorite thing. I honestly think we would be able to accomplish a lot more with regard to social justice and racial reconciliation and getting to a point where we understand each other if we change the way we talk to each other, asking more questions than asserting opinions, being more honest about what we don't know than what we do, getting okay with being wrong and having things shown more than told. Like I can teach a kid more about storytelling by showing them how to build a story than I can by just telling them, right? So if I say, there's this acronym that I do when I go on my school visits with elementary schoolers. I, I use the word story and I break it down into story components. So setting time, meaning how much time elapses during your narrative. The oh boy moment is what I call it, but that's the inciting incident. Risk or the stakes. And then you, the main character, like you have to have a character in a story. And then I'll have them come up on stage and I will have six volunteers. Five of them will give me one of each of those elements. And then the sixth person has to create a story summary on the spot. And every time it's like their minds blow open because Seeing somebody like teach you how to do a thing is a lot different than having somebody say, yes, well, this is this and this is this and you're wrong and I'm right. And it just I don't know. It's something it's powerful, I think, when you have these action symbols of love, not only in books, but in life. And I love that it occurs to him that like, wait a minute, that bowl does get refilled despite how many peaches I eat. And his dad doesn't like peaches himself. His dad does not like peaches. So clearly those are there for him. They're the only two people in the house. You speak about nuance, and I read some of your essays on your website, and it seemed that your visit to Israel yeah. in your 20s was very influential. The first one was a very powerful visit. So I wound up moving there. I lived there for three years. But my first time in Israel, I had the opportunity to go into Bethlehem. Now, what's interesting about Israel is most people, when they think of Israel, they think of the stuff they hear on the news. There's always conflict there, like nonstop. At some point in the country every day, there's a bomb or a shell dropping. But interestingly enough, a lot of the associations most people have with Israel, if they don't come from the news, are coming from the Bible. And this idea of it being this holy land, and it's the place where Jesus was born, etc. So I wanted to go into Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the city where traditionally we learn from the Bible, this is the city where Jesus was supposedly born. So I want to go into Bethlehem, and I want to see the place where Jesus was born. And I'm thinking like, it's going to be this cool thing where they have this whole reenactment with like live donkeys. And like I got really, I like romanticized the whole thing. 
Well, you get to the Church of the Nativity and you're shuttled down because there's lines and lines of people. You're like shuttled down into this underground cave where they have this piece of plexiglass that blocks off a hole in a cave. And it was like the most anticlimactic thing I'd ever experienced. But the interesting thing about Bethlehem that I kind of learned the first time I went in there, there's a wall, right? So there's a security wall that goes around what's known as the West Bank. It's called the West Bank because at one point it was the West Bank of Jordan, of the country of Jordan. And it's the West Bank of the Jordan River. So it's on the west side of the Jordan River. Well, there was a war and Israel took over that part of Jordan and have they've begun to kind of annex, not kind of, they have begun to annex and to live in and occupy parts of the territory in the West Bank. But there's still this wall that goes around it. So people who are born in the West Bank who are not Israeli, they can't cross over into Israel without a permit. So I'm in there and I see this wall and the art on the wall will bring you to tears instantly. And I got the opportunity to stay with a family. And the family had a daughter who was, I think, a year, she was a year younger than I was. And all she really wanted to do was go to university in the UK. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, so why don't you just do it? Like, it was like, beyond like, do you not have the grades for it? Like, what would keep you from going to university in the UK? And I found out that like, she had no passport because she technically had no country of residence. Because her family's Palestinian. Her, fa her family's Palestinian. So if you are Palestinian, you're not a citizen of Israel. There are Palestinian Israelis, like there are Arab citizens of Israel. But if you are a Palestinian and you live in the West Bank, nine times out of 10, you are not a citizen of Israel. Because Jordan doesn't claim you either. Jordan doesn't claim you either. Right. So there's no embassy you can go to to get a passport, basically. And that shook me to my core, especially as this like American citizen. I wave my passport. I can pretty much go wherever I want. I had Israeli friends who couldn't go into the West Bank or wouldn't go into the West Bank because with their Israeli passports, they ask a lot of questions about why Israelis are going into the West Bank. So I was just shook because I had never heard of a person who was born, who's like, who knows, countless generations born in this same place, but doesn't have a country that can give them a passport. And that's what made me want to start telling stories because I'd never heard anything like that. And it's a thing that I think it made me see the world in a very different way. And I wanted to like take that story and give it to somebody else so that they would see the world in a different way. And then they could tell somebody else and they would see it in a different way. I encountered another person in Israel who had lost his entire family, a Jewish person, an Israeli who lives in the West Bank, whose home had been attacked in the night, and his whole family was stabbed to death. And these two very, very different stories really gave me some insight into the way human beings affect each other. And that's what made me want to become a storyteller. So it got me kicked off, Israel did. That place is really something, to say the least. Now, on the trip with Scoob and Jima, mm -hmm. there are terrible echoes from the original trip because they stop at a restaurant in Alabama and they still get a side eye for a black male and a white female mm -hmm. traveling together. Yeah. What's interesting, if you were to flip it, if Jima had been black and Scoob had been white, it would have caused even more of an uproar. It's interesting the way that race still functions, I guess would be the right word, especially if down here in the South. So I live in Atlanta, which is a bit of an oasis when it comes to the way the South functions. Because like when I leave Atlanta, it's like, whoa, it's, it's, I almost get, 
a bit of culture shock driving into places like Tennessee, even North Georgia. There are all of these places where there are still Confederate flags flying, which is like, I shouldn't be surprised because it's not like I don't see it every time I drive through these areas, but every time. But when like you see it in Wisconsin and Illinois, then it starts to get really scary. That's wild to me, like totally wild to me. There's one place, so Stone Mountain in Georgia, it's right outside the perimeter. So it's technically outside of Atlanta, but there's this big hunk of granite that sticks up out of the ground and we call it Stone Mountain, even though it's not really a mountain. Well, in the side of this mountain, there's a carving of Confederate soldiers that nobody can get rid of. I mean, it's like six feet deep. This carving is six feet deep and like the size of a football field, right? It's such a fascinating reminder to me of what my state represented and in some parts still represents. Yeah, you have this white woman and this little black boy driving through different parts of the South. And in this particular scene, they're in Alabama. And she does. She winds up telling Scoob a story because this incident with him in the restaurant where you have these people kind of looking at them sideways reminds her of an incident she had in a convenience store when she was with his father. So Scoob's father's name is James. When Gma and James were in a convenience store when James was little, they had a similar incident, except the store owner said some pretty nasty things. So she's reminded of that. And it teaches Scoob a lot about the past just by his experiences in the present. So how did you decide which sites they would stop at on their trip? I have no idea. I think... Most of the sites are places that I've been to. So I will tell you this. I mapped the entire journey using a roadmap. It's like this Chevrolet roadmap from 1954. <laughs> so I found this roadmap on, on Amazon of See all places. See the USA in your Chevrolet. Yeah, it's like this. Exactly. So it's like this huge atlas. It's like this road atlas from 1954 where you can see what highways existed and what ones didn't. So that's kind of where I started my research. I needed to see if I were going to take a trip in a car across the American South in 1968, what was there and what wasn't. So I looked at what was there. There is an interstate that goes from South Carolina all the way across Texas. It's Interstate 20. And I used to live off of I-20 in Atlanta, and I know that that's an interstate that goes all the way to, I think it goes almost to Mexico, like it splits off and becomes I-10, and that continues on. But I knew that that was like the longest interstate in the South. So I decided they were going to go along that interstate, and I tried to pick historic sites that were not too far off of it. Because what I really wanted to do was make sure there was a sense of urgency for Gma. So they're making these stops, but she's not going to veer too far off the path. Like they didn't go to New Orleans, for instance. Like they weren't going to drive two hours south to go to New Orleans uh, when they're driving through Louisiana. They're just trying to stay on as straight and narrow a path as possible. So a lot of those sites were based on, really based on I-20. As they're making their trip, Gma doesn't seem to be too concerned about contacting her son, letting him know how Scoob's doing on the trip. Not at all. She is not concerned at all about contacting her son. I think she talks to Scoob's dad twice before she decides she's just not going to talk to him anymore, which is one of those things that gives Scoob pause. This is one of the first things that makes him stop and ponder the circumstances and, and actually think about like, wait a minute, where am I and what am I doing? Yes, I'm with Gma, but like, where are we actually going? What are we 
doing? Why are we going there? And when am I going to be going home? So it's in these moments when Scoop can tell that Jima has zero interest in contacting his father and letting him know where they are that he begins to worry. So this is one of those moments where he's developing some agency. So you mentioned early on the 82-year-old international jewel thief who mm-hmm. helped spawn the story. So at what point do you go, middle grade novel? <laughs> you know what's wild? I started out with the idea of having a grandmother for a jewel thief and doing a YA novel where like the teenager is involved in a heist with this grandparent. So like this grandmother and granddaughter go on a jewel heist and ah, something just didn't sit right on that one. Like I, I couldn't get that one to work, which is when I got to thinking about what Doris Payne made me think about, which is what I mentioned earlier. Like, what is in my grandparents' past that I don't know about? And that's where I got to this idea of middle grade and kind of coming to understand that your hero is a human being and human beings are multifaceted. No one is purely good or purely evil. We are all quite the bag of tricks. And that seemed like a lesson that like an 11 or a 12-year-old would learn and not necessarily like a 16 or 17-year-old. Now, you've enjoyed much success with your previous three YA novels, both commercial and critical. Why did you decide to move into the the middle grade? So there's another author who is like an older brother to me. His name is Jason Reynolds. Fabulous. Um, He's my favorite. Don't tell my other author friends. They'll be jealous. (laughs) Basically, I truly treat him like an older brother, and I just want to do everything that he does. (laughs) So, for instance, he decided he was going to do a middle grade novel and he convinced me to do a middle grade novel. So that's where this came from. Because before I talked to him about it, I didn't think I could write a middle grade novel. I don't know why. I don't know. I just didn't think I could like nail the voice or like figure out what would be the most important thing to talk about. Clearly I was wrong. Like I think I did a pretty good job. But part of that comes from Jason helping me to understand what middle grade is from his perspective. And we talked about how like in middle grade novels, well, okay, backtrack. So in YA novels, you have a lot of kids experiencing a thing for the first time. Well, in the middle grade novels, they're getting prepared to experience the thing for the first time. So either they are just coming to realize that this thing that they are going to experience in a few years exists, or they're seeing that like, like they've known that it exists and they're starting to see that it's probably going to be a part of their life and they're grappling with the idea of it coming into their life at some point. So he kind of helped me get a hold of the point, I guess, of middle grade and kind of like the emotional core of middle grade books. But basically, if Jason does it, I'm probably going to want to (laughs) try it at some point. He wrote the Miles Morales novel and I was like, I want to do a Marvel book and now I'm doing Shuri from Black Panther. So like, thank you, Jason. Is there something he could do that you would not want to do in terms of writing? I'm sure there's something. Oh, I'm probably never going to write a book in verse. I just said that, and I'm sure it's going to, like, in, like, a couple (laughs) years, I'll be back. You'll be like, so, this book you said you were never going to write. That is one of my areas of insecurity when it comes to writing is the idea of poetry. It seems so precious and, like, I don't want to mess it up. It's, like, that kind of thing. Like, poetry is so prestigious, and I don't have that kind of prestige. Again, I'm sure I'm going to eat my words. But as of right now, that's the one thing I don't think I would do yet. I should probably add as a caveat. Well, as an interviewer, it's one thing I won't do because it just intimidates me so much. I I know how to conduct an interview around narratives. Yeah. But around 60 different disparate poems, I would be lost. Like what? 
right? Where do I even begin? I don't even know how to start. And it's interesting because poetry collections generally have some kind of central theme. And I love reading them. But of course, a poetry collection is different from a novel in verse. It's just the idea of using meter to tell a story. I'm like, I would really screw this up. Though, interestingly enough, I don't think you actually can screw it up since it really is just about rhythm. But no, I, I haven't tried that. And I don't know that I will. She says now in 2020. <laughs> All right. We've heard it, folks. <laughs> it has been marked on the calendars. So what's on tap next for you then? Yeah, this is a big year for me. May 5th is that first Shuri novel that I mentioned before. So Shuri is the little sister of T'Challa, who is the Black Panther. The fabulous scientist. Yes. She is the smartest person in the Marvel Universe like without question. And that made her really interesting to write. The number of people I had to consult for research just to create one character was <laughs> fascinating. Like I had a consultant in cybersecurity. I had one in physics. I had a scientist telling me all about how like electromagnetic waves work. Like there were all of these different disciplines that I had to tap. I had like, um, not a geologist, but it's like the people who study the temperature of the earth. There was like somebody who did topography. Like there were all of these people that I had to consult just so I could write this one like 13-year-old kid <laughs> because like she's the smartest person ever. And she's also tremendously funny. She is hysterical. That was fun. Like writing her, her like snarkiness was a lot of fun. My favorite thing about this upcoming book, the Shuri book, is that in the book, she's 13, which means that it's pre-canon. So she doesn't exist in the comic canon prior to being like in her late teens or early 20s. So I'm literally getting to build her this backstory where we see who she was as a kid. That has been a lot of fun because I was that like nerdy kid who in seventh grade, my favorite book was Michael Crichton's Sphere. Like I was obsessed with Sphere and I was obsessed with the idea of black holes. And I wanted to know what it would be like to be on the, the event horizon of a black hole. How would it be to get sucked into a black hole? Like would your head stay above at the line and then the rest of you gets ripped to shreds? Like how does all that work? Like I was fascinated by those things. So in a way I'm getting to write a smarter version of myself who lives in this imaginary country with all of the resources in the world. Do you have any limitations on you from Marvel and Disney when it comes to kind of establishing this character's timeline pre-canon? Um, not exactly. I mean, you definitely have to learn the character as she exists so that the backstory makes sense. But there weren't really a whole lot of like, no, you can't do that. Oh, nice. I didn't really get much of that. There's even a cameo in this first book that I am super excited about. And I think other people will be very excited about it too. And they gave me absolutely no pushback on it. So I'm really excited about people encountering a character that pretty much everybody is very familiar with. It's going to be, I think it's going to be really great. So when is that due to hit the shelves? That is May 5th. And then after that on, right now it's slated for October 6th, the sequel to Dear Martin comes out. And that is called Dear Justice. And it actually follows a character from Dear Martin. Uh, it's a boy named Quan. So our first encounter with Quan is early on in the book. So Justice is racially profiled in the opening chapter. And then like a little bit, like a chapter and a half or so later, we find out that the officer who profiled him has been shot and killed. 
And it turns out the person who shot and killed him is a boy that Justice knows because they grew up together. This next book is from that boy's perspective. So we encounter Quan. We really like have our first true encounter with him in the second half of Dear Martin because Justice goes to visit him in jail. And they have this conversation and you can tell that they were old friends. But at the close of Dear Martin, Quan is in jail awaiting trial on these murder charges. And we find out in Dear Justice that the two boys have continued to communicate, like they've been writing letters back and forth. And so I decided to use this sequel as an opportunity to tell a different type of story. So you have the black boys who are just upstanding citizens and who are doing everything right and who are high achieving and who, you know, they're like shooting for the stars and they're going to get there. But then you have boys like Quan in our society who, you know, for reasons that become apparent in the book, they wind up taking a different path. What I discovered when touring and talking to kids about Dear Martin is that while there are a lot of kids who love the book, there are also a lot of kids who can't exactly relate to justice because so many kids, especially in high poverty areas, are completely disenfranchised. They aren't gonna go to Yale. They don't get high test scores. There are a lot of kids who are doing good just to show up at school every day, but their stories are just as important, especially the ones who do wind up making like decisions that hurt other people. I wanted to tell a story about a kid like that, a kid who has some stuff in his background that has been harmful to others, who has made some decisions and who has, is participating in some activities that are, you know, unsavory. Because I think that despite these choices that this kid made, he's still a kid. Like he's still a child. And even children who do wrong are worthy and deserving of our compassion and of our concern. And I want this book, I'm hoping that it'll make people think a little bit harder before labeling a kid a delinquent because they get in trouble once at school or deciding that a kid is like headed for a life of crime just because like they do one thing wrong and all of a sudden you've completely written them off because they're fulfilling the stereotype, this racist stereotype you have in your head. So that one comes out in October and I am both excited and terrified. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, it's amazing how prolific you are. Jason, again, like I like watched Jason very closely for the first few years of his career. And I was like, I want to do that. I do often neglect to remember that like I have two children and he doesn't. <laughs> so like <laughs> maybe factor in that like, you know, you don't have as much time. But yeah, I will be chasing his tail for the rest of my life, I'm sure. Well, Nick, I want to thank you so much for stopping by today. It's been such a pleasure having thank you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Nick Stone is the author of the middle grade novel, Clean Getaway, which is published by Crown Books for Young Readers. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WYPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WYPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.